Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, uh, it's Wednesday, November 9th, 2016. I'm not going to do a regular show this week. New episodes usually go up on Wednesdays, uh, but today feels a little different. And it doesn't feel like I should do a regular show. It's the day after the 2016 presidential election. Uh, I'm not feeling great, to be honest with you. I don't think a lot of us are feeling all that great right now. And uh, maybe against my better judgment, I feel like I want to try to say some things about what's happened. Share my thoughts. And uh, with that in mind, I don't think it's fair to tie what I'm about to say to a regular episode. Meaning, I don't think it would be fair to my guest. It would be too weighted. Uh, the mood is too blue. And uh, I thought I would just take this week to do this. And then next week, I'll be back with a regular episode, a guest, and a conversation. So, uh, I'm just going to talk. And, uh, you know, before I, I uh, really get started, I feel like I should issue an advance apology if what I say sounds like nonsense. I did not uh, sleep last night. I don't want to sound melodramatic. I just couldn't sleep. I was anxious and uh, depressed. That's the truth. I think a lot of us felt that way. It was hard to sleep. I feel uh, sick to my stomach about what's happened. That's how I feel. I think it's a very sad moment uh, for me and for many of us who wanted a different outcome in the election. And I would, I would add that it's probably a very happy moment for those of you out there who support uh, Donald Trump. Maybe you listen to this show. Uh, I think that statistically speaking, it's likely that at least a few of you uh, support uh, supported his candidacy. And I know what it feels like to have a candidate that you believe in win an election. I know what it's like to feel like the country has gone off the rails and is headed in the wrong direction and to feel like things are turning around. This was the case for me in uh, 2008 when Obama got elected and then reelected in 2012. I know what that feels like. That's a good feeling. It's a big thrill and uh, it makes you feel like, oh, you know, my country is sane. Makes you feel like your voice is being heard. And when your candidate loses, it makes you feel the opposite. Makes you feel like your country is insane. Makes you feel like 
Yeah, you're alone. You're not being heard. I understand those feelings. I've had both of them. Most of us in uh, American life, if we live to a certain age, have both of those experiences. And, you know, I've never been shy in stating how I feel politically uh, in life or on this show. I, I try not to be a blowhard about it, um, but I, I happen to think it's important to dialogue respectfully. I think it's important to state how you feel, sometimes forcefully. I think it's important to listen. And listen deeply. Maybe especially with people with whom we disagree. And I, you know, I've been uh, not shy at all on this program talking about how I feel about Donald Trump's candidacy. I thought yesterday when I went to the polls that he was a grave and unique threat uh, to our country and the world. And I feel the same way today. I don't think this is going to go well. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a very positive experience for America and the world. I think that his presidency will ultimately uh, be a disaster. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I really, really hope I'm wrong. You know, I don't think it's, it's probably not too healthy to get into the business of predictions at this point, to start forecasting into the future endlessly and spiraling that way. Still though, I, you know, I can't escape the feeling that the next four years at least will be uh, a dark period with a lot of unrest. And as a dad, especially, it makes me feel concerned. Any parent understands this, whether you supported him uh, or not, you want your kids to have a good world. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So I had the thought last night as I was in bed, middle of the night, you know, kind of drifting in and out of a kind of half sleep. I had the thought that, you know, in the days to come, the best of us need to be at our best. That thought occurred to me, flowered in my mind. And uh, I got up and I even tweeted it. And then immediately after tweeting it, I felt weird about the phrasing because it's uh, the first person plural. The best of us need to be at our best. And I think that the use of the first person plural, or at least I thought this last night at like 3 a.m., I was worried that it implied that I consider myself among the best of Americans. That's not what I meant. Like what I meant to say is that people of good conscience need to step up in the days to come and uh, hold our leaders to account, hold Donald Trump to account, whether you supported him or not. I find it very hard to argue that he is a man who has lowered the bar for what constitutes acceptable behavior in American public life. And, you know, I know we can quibble about PC culture and people needing to toughen up or whatever. I know that there's some gray area in terms of people being oversensitive, but come on. The things this man has said, the way that he has behaved toward any number of uh, minorities, people with disabilities. I don't know how you can, can honestly say that he has not been a negative force in that regard. Disparages Latinos, calls them rapists, mocks the Muslim uh, mother of a fallen U.S. soldier, questions the birthplace of our first African-American president. You know, it just goes on. And it's hard to see, uh, to see him and not say, well, this is a guy who's a bigot. It's hard to look at him and say, well, this is, this is a man who's racist, who has racist beliefs. It's hard uh, not to see him and he almost never laughs. Have you ever seen him laugh? I don't even know if I've ever seen him laugh. Maybe he smiles, but he doesn't laugh. Who doesn't laugh? And who rarely, rarely apologizes. Rarely. And even then, is it really heartfelt? It's hard for me to pay attention to what he does and says and not see him as a very troubled human being to whom we have just given a very large amount of power. That's my perspective. And now that he's the president-elect and will soon be the president, uh, he needs to be so much better than what he's been. And I have very grave doubts about whether or not he can be. I don't, uh, I don't think there's very much evidence at this point that this is possible. He's also in his 70s. People don't tend to make huge fundamental changes once they get to that age. It's not impossible, but it's not likely. So what I'm saying is that people of good conscience with a clear vision, people who really follow politics, who care about what happens in Washington and in the corridors of power elsewhere, people who read about this stuff deeply, we need to speak up. We need to get organized. We need to participate more. I need to participate more. I need to be better.
if Donald Trump violates the rule of law, uh, we need to say so. We cannot be afraid to say so. Loud and clear. We need to make our voices heard. And uh, critically, critically, I feel that we need to do it in a way that it uh, adheres to our highest ideals. And I know this is starting to sound uh, like an Obama speech. <laughs> uh, I just want to make it very clear that I'm not advocating violence, violent behavior, hateful rhetoric, none of that. I'm advocating nonviolence. I'm advocating dignified resistance where it's needed. Emotional, uh, hysterical behavior, the use of hateful and uh, inflammatory rhetoric, we should avoid it. It, isn't eff it, it is not effective, ultimately. It isn't persuasive in the grand scheme of things, as far as I can tell. We need to be better. And uh, I think we need to stick together and maintain uh, a sense of dignity and courage, a sense of humor, and a sense of common humanity. It's like Obama you know, kept saying all throughout the campaign. It became a, a kind of catchphrase on the Democratic side. Uh, they go low, we go high. Somebody goes low, respond by going high. And, you know, I generally abhor or at least like deeply mistrust political rhetoric, but I do like that phrase. I like what it says. Go high when they go low. When someone forgets our common humanity, remember our common humanity. We can't lose sight of it. We can't sink down into the mud. We can't uh, go blind with fear or rage in response. That's an unhealthy and, and unhelpful response. So, uh, you know, I've said many times on this show, I have a, a, an ongoing, a very, a very deep interest in the relationship between the individual and the collective. It's one of these questions about life and about our politics that I turn over in my head pretty regularly. It's how I relate to politics at the deepest level. It's how I relate to life or try to is by turning over this question, the relationship between the individual and the collective, which is a critical tension in the United States in our founding documents and our, and how we were conceived, uh, how this country was conceived. And, you know, it's tough to talk about this stuff and uh, to do it well, it's very hard to do it well, to be clear to use language in a way that really lands. I'm going to try, uh, because this, I think is just the best way I know how to make sense of what just happened. So again, you know, apologies in advance if I botch this or if it somehow seems insufferable. But, you know, for me, when I think about uh, the relationship between the individual and the collective. Um, I go back to the teaching uh, of no self. It's a Buddhist teaching. Or at least that's the context in which I learned it. I'm not trying to proselytize. I'm just saying this is where I got it. The teaching of no self. The insight of no self. 
There's no such thing as the self. The self is an illusion. And, you know, it's something that I imagine uh, when most of us hear this, at least the first time, it seems pretty absurd. There's no self. Of course there's a self. I'm a self. Look at me right here. This is myself. Here I am in my body. I'm a self. And of course this is true. At the conventional level of reality, this is true. But, um... There are two levels of reality. That's what this teaching or this insight uh, tells us. Hang on a second. I forgot to turn off these fucking refrigerators. One second. So there are uh, two levels of reality is what I was saying. (laughs) Before I was so rudely interrupted by my refrigerators. And uh, that's what the teaching of no self is trying to tell us. And again, I'm not proselytizing. This is just the context in which uh, I feel like reality makes more sense. This is, this is how I got it anyway. This is where I'm at. Trying to make, you know, make sense of the, under, of the relationship between the individual and the collective. So there's two levels of reality. There's the conventional level in which, uh, you know, you and I exist and operate in every day. It's the world as we know it. It's the matrix. It's driving to work. It's going to school, whatever it is, our tangible lived reality on planet earth. That's conventional reality. And we all sort of know what that is. And then there's, uh, the other kind of reality, which is the ultimate the ultimate uh, reality, a deeper level of reality that exists beyond the conventional, beyond what our senses can perceive. Uh, it's a reality that, uh, you know, it's the reality in which all phenomena are connected. And I know that might sound sort of woo woo and ridiculous, but I believe it's actually true. And not only do I believe it's true, and this is what excites me about this stuff is that I think it's pretty easily observable in our world, in our conventional reality. And, uh, you know, in Buddhism, there's a sutra called the diamond sutra, the core of which is pretty straightforward. This is because that is, this exists because that exists. And I know it sounds like I'm probably going way off topic here, but just stick with me. This is how I'm trying to make sense of this shit. (laughs) This is because that is. This exists because that exists. All phenomena originate interdependently. That's the nut of it. And this is the root of the insight of no self. Uh, When we say that there's no self, we mean that nothing and no one can exist by itself alone. That's it. Nothing and no one can exist by itself alone. So, for example, you take a flower. We have this word. The word is flower. And we know... Generally speaking, when we hear it, uh, what the word represents, we can picture a flower in our head. We see a rose or a tulip or, you know, whatever it is. So conventionally speaking, we know what a flower is, but when we look deeper, we see that there's no individual entity called flower. It cannot be found. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. 
What we call a flower using our language actually consists of an infinite number of phenomena. There's sunlight, there's oxygen, there's nitrogen, there's soil, there's, there's uh, minerals, there's water. A flower is a combination of things. It has no separate individual self, no separate flower self. It's a combination. And the things of which it is made are also combinations. And this is true of everyone and everything. All phenomena in our observable conventional reality. None of us ultimately has a separate self. So, yeah, my name is Brad. I'm a person. And yes, I am a self in a conventional uh, reality. But ultimately, I'm made of my parents. I'm made of my grandparents, all of my ancestors. I'm made of uh, the teachers who have taught me what I know. I'm made of my friends, my extended family people in my community. I'm made of food. I'm made of air, water, sunlight. It's infinite. You remove any of these things from me and uh, I collapse. You remove one of my parents, I'm gone. Take away water, same thing. You remove sunlight from a rose bush, what happens to the rose bush? It's not that things are, it's that things inter-are. It's not that people are, it's that people inter-are. And, you know, to my mind, it's a pretty easy thing to understand intellectually. But what I've found is that it's a hard thing to actually know as a matter of lived insight. It's a hard to really live the truth of no-self. I think that's why I'm so, you know, I, I think I might have even mentioned this before probably dozens of times. <laughs> I think that's a lot of why I have a fascination with the psychedelic experience, because I think it hints at this. It provides us glimpses sometimes. Do you like the music, by the way? Is that a nice touch? It's hard to, it's hard to live it though, as a, as a, you know, a lived insight. It's hard to know it as a live in, uh, a lived insight. It's hard to operate as a human being from this core understanding on a really consistent basis that the universe is an interdependent arrangement that we're all connected that my happiness is your happiness and your suffering is my suffering that this is because that is does this make any sense? <laughs> so I think I'm trying to make a point I'm building to a point it's going to be very dramatic when I finally get there We have these uh, dualities in our universe. You know, there's darkness and there's light, for example. And, you know, we might think we only want light. Light seems way better than dark. We're scared of the dark. Or maybe we like the dark and we don't want light. We don't want to be exposed. We like darkness. But the truth is that light cannot exist without darkness and darkness cannot exist without light. You can't have one without the other. They're made of each other in much the same way that uh, matter cannot exist without empty space. And empty space cannot exist without matter. If there, were no ma if there were no matter, then it would all be empty space, in which case, if you were just like this tiny little point of consciousness in the, mid you know, in the middle of this vast empty space with no matter, you wouldn't know what empty space was. 
It's like a fish in the ocean. Doesn't know what water is. Just is. Or something like that. It's the same way that happiness cannot exist without suffering. So we might think, oh, you know, we wanna, I want to live in a world where it's only happy, where there's no suffering. That's a pleasant thought, right? But the truth is that if we had no suffering, we wouldn't even know what happiness is. We would have nothing to compare it to. There would be no happiness because our happiness is born from our suffering, our understanding of suffering. And when we've known suffering and difficulty, uh, I think if we handle it right, if we take care of it properly, it can deepen our appreciation of happier times, happier experiences. So I think that's what wise people are. Wise people who seem very happy or content or at peace. It's not that they've known no suffering. You, oftentimes it's that they've known more than the average bear. And they found their way through it. And they've learned how to take care of it. So you can't have one without the other. Everything inter is. Everything and everyone is interdependent. The individual is made of the collective and the collective is made of individuals. You can't have a collective without individuals. You can't have a, an electorate or a nation without individual people, but you can't have individual people without the collective. <laughs> a human being cannot exist by herself alone, operating only according to her self-interest or his self-interest because she's made of other human beings. Literally she is. She's made of these other elements. She has no self. No separate individual self. She exists in a world with other human beings. And, uh, you know, our fates are bound together, whether we like it or not. We're all here together on this planet. For now. And, you know, along those same lines, there's individual consciousness and then I really do believe there's a collective consciousness. In 2008, uh, you know, America collectively produced Barack and Michelle Obama. Elected Barack president. They, you know, they manifested and were voted into the White House by us as a collective. A majority of the collective did that. But I think that the manifestation of Barack Obama, you know, it runs deeper than that. It's the people who supported him. It's the people who didn't. It's people living and dead. It's the slaves who worked in the fields. It's the people who worked for the cause of civil rights. It's the people who worked against the cause of civil rights. Everyone part of a collective. some way, somehow contributing something good or bad or somewhere in between. And, you know, I would, I would say that, you know, Barack Obama is the expression of certain aspects of our humanity. Donald Trump is the expression of certain aspects of our humanity as a representative figure. I would argue uh, very strongly that Barack Obama is the expression of our better angels 
in the aggregate. He's not a perfect person. No one is, but he's the expression of our better angels would be my take. And I would say that Trump is, uh, all too often the expression of our basest emotions, fear, anger, and so on. That's not all that he is, but that is too often for my taste what it seems like he is. Trying to be as judicious as I can here. Can you feel it? So I guess what I'm saying is that I, I find myself uh, in today and over the past several hours strangely comforted by the idea of this interconnectivity, by the idea of uh, all of us being in it together. And I hope that I'm proven wrong uh, in terms of how I assess Donald Trump. I hope he conducts himself with shocking grace and wisdom while in office. And if he does not, I hope that those of us who care uh, a lot about our country and our world can make up the difference and bring to the table whatever grace and wisdom is required. We have to care about each other. We have to be better uh, listeners. I think it goes both ways. They have to listen to us. We have to listen to them. The dialogue needs to be healthier. Empathy needs to be greater. It's not easy. You know, I think of the people who voted for Trump and it's tempting to sort of paint them with a broad brush. You know, they're all stupid. They're all hateful. They're all ignorant. They're all angry. They're all, you know, all these different things that we can tell ourselves as a way of trying to understand who they are, what motivates them. But people are, are very rarely simple. <laughs> you know, the people who elected Trump, they're not all one way. And yes, there are some deeply troubled people in the Trump coalition. There are people who are overt racists, KKK members, anti-Semites, and that's their principal identity. And that's deeply troubling. But most of them, I mean, there's millions and millions of people who voted for this guy. I would argue that most of them are probably relatively ordinary in the grand scheme of things. Like you could sit next to them on a bus and have a nice conversation. You could be related to some of them. I'm related to some of them. And that's a hard truth. I have relatives who undoubtedly uh, voted for Donald Trump. I don't think in my immediate family. I'm almost too scared to ask. <laughs> Pretty sure not. But uh, even the relatives who voted for Trump, the truth is that I love them. They're my family. I couldn't disagree more strongly about the decision to support this guy as president, but I still love them. It's hard, you know, but I don't see how expressions of anger and uh, vitriol uh, accusation. I don't see how any of that could do anything to persuade them to see things differently or to hear me better and vice versa. So it's hard to do this stuff, but I think it's necessary. So 
I guess what I, you know, what I'm trying to say, and, and again, I said at the beginning that this was probably going to be a mess and that I would probably go off on some winding tangent, but today, what I think I'm trying to say on uh, November 9th, 2016 is that, uh, I want to resist the impulse to look outward and point fingers and be angry. And I want to turn inward. I think that's what I'm trying to do here. I want to look at myself. I want to look at my own behavior, my own thoughts, my own actions. And I want to be better. I want to rise to the occasion in the right way, in the wise way. If I want things to change for the better, as I do, if I want the world to be uh, more just and peaceful, more verdant, like the, uh, what, like it's like the plug on NPR for the John D and uh, Catherine T. MacArthur foundation. If I want things to change for the better, then, uh, I need to work to make it happen. I need to work to be that change. It's the old, uh, Gandhi quote. I have to accept that responsibility as a human being, as a citizen, as a parent, as a husband, as a friend, all that shit. And as difficult as it may be, as crazy as it might sound, I need to have empathy, um, for people who behave abhorrently, you know, it's like, love your enemy. It's the, you know, it's that the world needs more empathy. I need to have empathy for Trump supporters. I need to try to understand them with uh, love and not hate or blame or accusation or disgust as hard as that might be. I need to have empathy for Donald Trump himself. That might not be a very popular sentiment to express to some of you. And it doesn't mean that I would excuse his bad behavior. Uh, I don't think I've done that here or anywhere. Uh, nor does it mean that I would look at him through rose-colored glasses. Quite the opposite. What I mean is that I want to resist the impulse to make him a monster. Or to make his supporters into monsters. To make them subhuman. I want to go high. And you know, the truth is that suffering is made of suffering. That's how I understand it. When a person makes you suffer, it's because they themselves are suffering. They're afflicted. They can't handle it. And so it sort of spills out onto other people. It spills out onto you. Donald Trump is a man. He's not a monster and he's suffering a lot. He needs help. <laughs> uh, he needs love. I know that might sound nuts, but I think it's true. I mean, isn't it though? Considering his behavior, how can you not say to yourself, wow, he's really suffering. Wow. He's troubled. He's hurting. 
and now he might uh, hurt others. We need to try to do what we can to stop that. So, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist monk and uh, a lot of this stuff I've learned from him, books I've read by him, lectures or uh, discussions I've listened to. He's a, he's been a huge uh, help to me. Uh, He's had a big impact on me as a writer and as just a human being, as an example of a really fucking good human being. And, you know, he talks about writing love letters. And I should say, too, it's, it's complicated because I feel like people who live a monastic life and are removed from the, I don't know, I feel like life is a lot more complicated when you're in the world than when you're on the monastery or at the monastery. But in uh, his defense, you know, his whole thing is engaged Buddhism, which is like Buddhists out in the world working for social justice, actually down in the mire. So it's not like he's been sitting on the sidelines. In fact, quite the opposite. But, you know, I, people who live a contemplative existence have time and space to be contemplative. That's one of their genius moves is to give themselves that. And so I think it's easier to maybe do some of the things that they advocate in that environment than it is to do it in like the rough and tumble of uh, conventional existence for the rest of us. But that's what their function is, I think. That's what a really good contemplative does for the rest of us. They do that work. They find that time and space for themselves so they can do that contemplative work and live that way. And hopefully provide the rest of us with some insights and some stars to steer by. So anyway, Thich Nhat Hanh uh, talks about writing love letters. And uh, during the uh, second Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration in the midst of the Iraq war and all that, uh, nuttiness, he wrote a love letter to George W. Bush. And obviously not like a romantic, I'm not talking about romantic love, (laughs) nothing pervy. The point is that there was no anger in it, no blame or accusation. It's more like love. Uh, it's, it's a encouragement to do the right thing. It's not without criticism but it's filled with love. It's like people who work for peace, who work for the cause of peace or social justice, but are really, really angry. Filled with all this negative energy. It doesn't work. If you, if you really want to advocate for peace, you have to be peaceful. You have to be peace. You have to live it. So the question then is like, was this letter that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote to George W. Bush, was it effective? I don't know. I mean, not really, I guess. Who knows? You know, like when I can't remember when he sent it, what changed in the administration after that. But let's just say that George W. Bush read it. And for some reason, I imagine he probably did. I could be wrong. But let's say he did. It was a lovely letter, and I would imagine in reading it that it had an effect, however small. But that effect was positive. It watered a positive seed within him. Seed of compassion or the seed of feeling loved or whatever it is. You know, you write a, a love letter to somebody, a kind letter to somebody, however short or long. That makes them feel good. 
It's a very deep way to communicate with somebody. So I don't know. I'm thinking of that and I'm thinking to myself, God, should I be writing a love letter to Donald Trump right now? (laughs) I'm just talking about shared humanity and uh, hope over fear and love over hate of not succumbing to our worst instincts of not reacting badly, freaking out, making things worse for ourselves and others rather than better. Talking about leading and of trying very hard to be the change that we want to see in the world and to, you know, trying to actually live that every day. However hard it is, however crazy it might seem, I feel like it starts with us as individuals. It starts with me as an individual realizing that I'm part of a collective experience and that that ultimate truth is much bigger than my conventional reality, my conventional I am Brad self. I'm part of something much bigger than myself. That's what guide. That's the core, the uh, insider idea that guides my political beliefs. Hyper individualism is the opposite of what I'm talking about. But hyper collectivism is also not what I'm talking about, because it's not one way or the other. It's not that we are just individuals trapped in our little body selves, and that's it. And it's not that oh, we're just part of this massive collective, powerless, you know, remember they inner are the individual is made of the collective and the collective is made of the individual, but the collective is the ultimate reality. That deep connection, that interbeing is the ultimate reality. And so I think that having respect for, you know, both sides of the equation, I always tip in the direction of that common humanity and wanting to organize our society and like our human family in a way that recognizes that, that isn't lost in the illusion of a self that isn't lost in that illusion of separation from one another. And it's actually, it's something, you know, really quite spectacular when I step back and think about it. You know, like whatever the fuck this is, even if it's all just a video game, like what an incredible video game. <laughs> you can't say it's not fascinating. However terrible it is at times, however difficult, this is fascinating or it's interesting. Maybe that's small consolation, but you know, we're in it. We're in the game. And we're here together for a short amount of time. And uh, your happiness is my happiness. Your suffering is my suffering. Uh, If my neighbor's happy and feels uh, loved and cared for, it's likely that I'm going to be happier as a result. And if my neighbor's unhappy and feels forgotten and alone, it's likely that I'm going to be less happy as a result. So uh, let's take care of ourselves in the days to come. And let's work uh, to make things better. Let's make good art. Let's write Stories for people, if that's what we do. And, uh, you know, beyond that, let's just help 
Let's help each other out. Let's be generous of spirit. Uh, let's not be afraid of the future. Let's not be afraid to speak out. Stand up for what we believe in, in the right way. And, uh, go high. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this. My name is Brad Listy and I approve this message. (laughs) 